Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Hear the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would illuminate your word to us this morning as it is proclaimed, we pray that it would speak to us, it would show us who we are and help us better understand what you are doing within us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I can relate to them. The psychology that Paul is describing, the struggle inside that he's describing, I'm no stranger to that, and neither are you. We all know what it's like to want to do what is good, but find ourselves instead doing what is evil and feeling revulsion at it, feeling somehow divided within ourselves, not at peace with ourselves and what we've done. What Paul is, is pointing to here is something that we can relate to. Now note at the beginning of this paragraph, Paul poses another one of his questions, reminding us that as he's talking, as he's saying, I struggle with sin, the overall context here is still the law. How to think about the law. How should we relate to the law? That's the question still in his mind. Last time, we dealt with the question of of whether or not the law is bad. If the law seems to be over on this side of the line with sin, we are no longer under sin, we are no longer under the law, then that implies there's something bad about the law. Paul, of course, says nothing could be further from the truth. Of course not. Of course not. The law is good. The law is holy. The law reflects God's holy character. Well, maybe so. But now the question Paul asks is, is the law to blame? The law may be good and holy and and all of that, but like a hot poker on the sinfulness of my flesh, it could still burn me, still uh, condemn me. So is the law to blame for my corruption? And again, Paul says, no, 
No, not at all. Sin is to blame, not the law. But he adds something else to this. There is no conflict between the law and the believing sinner. On the contrary, the believing sinner is, in fact, in agreement with the law. The way we've been talking, there's a line. And on one side of the line is sin and death. The other side of the line is grace and life. And the law is over there because the law shows us how sinful we are. The law points out our condemnation. But now what Paul is going to do is take the law and bring it over on this side of the line and show that not only is the law not to blame for our condition, but that we actually agree with the law and what the law says. We are on the same side as the law. And to illustrate this, he gets into the the complex feelings we have within us when it comes to our sin. The fact that you hate the sin that you commit, Paul says, shows that you agree with the law's judgment on that sin. If you hate the sin that you commit, you agree with the law. You agree that the law is good in its condemnation of that sin. The line is still there. It's just the law is now brought over to this side of the line to join us here to give us insight. So there's really just two lessons that we're going to try to unpack here. The first one is this. Your divided self proves that you are in agreement with the law. The very fact that you have a divided self demonstrates, as Paul says, that you are in agreement with the law. Secondly, although you may not rule over sin yet, you no longer have to be defined by it. There is a struggle with sin within your heart. You may believe in Christ, but you still struggle with sin. You still do what you hate. You may not yet have sin under your dominion. You have not subdued the flesh. But the very fact that there is a struggle suggests that you no longer have to be defined by your sin. What you've done does not get to say who you are. Your transgressions do not have the final word when it comes to your identity. So first, the believer's divided self proves that you're in agreement with the law. Paul raises the law, did that which is good then. The law bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So it isn't the law that brings death, it's sin that brings death. And what's interesting here is that sin is producing death through what is good, which is an aspect of of the treachery of evil with which we are all familiar. That, That sin actually twists what is good Sin takes not the worst in us, but sometimes the best in us. Our good intentions, our good desires, and uses those things to bring about our fall. It twists what is good to bring about evil ends. And yet, 
in a way, this is exactly why the law was given. Paul is saying this is part of the logic of the law. Part of why God has put this good and holy standard in the world is that God understands the nature of sin. And by the very twisting of that good standard, sin will demonstrate its perversity. It will show its wrongness by the way in which it twists what is good into something evil, revealing just how sinful it is. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, Paul writes, and not only that, but that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That, that the evil could be seen to be evil. But also that we could see more than that, that the evil cannot be quantified. It's not a little bit of evil. It's not even a lot of evil. It's an immeasurable degree of evil. A vast sea beyond comprehension. All of that revealed to us by the law. And the law is spiritual, Paul says. The law is spiritual. And what he means when he says the law is spiritual isn't... um, like the law is non-corporeal, like the law isn't physical, instead it's ephemeral, it's sort of unseeable. When he says the law is spiritual, he's pointing to the law's perfection, its holiness, its, its uh, godliness. That's the sense in which it is spiritual, it is perfect. In contrast, we're not. And that's the problem. Because we have this standard against which to measure ourselves and our sin, and we don't measure up because we are, as Paul says, of the flesh, sold under sin. So that, in Paul's words, I do not understand my own actions. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. People argue over who the I is in Romans 7. Is Paul talking about himself before he came to faith? Is he, talk about, is he talking about himself presently, like right now? The Apostle Paul is struggling with sin. The Apostle Paul is doing what he hates. Or is he just sort of being generous and, and saying I when he really means you? Just, you know, kind of making himself a representative of others, it's been read a lot of different ways. I'm going to suggest there's good reason to think that when Paul says these words, he's referring to himself, to us by extension, and he's referring to himself in the present tense. So himself as a believer, he's not reflecting back on how it used to be. Now earlier in chapter 7, he does that. He does talk about the way things used to be in relation to the law for him. And he uses the past tense when he does that. He speaks of the way things used to be in the past tense, the way that we do. And now you'll notice he's no longer speaking in the past tense. He's speaking in the present tense, suggesting a present reality. And not only that, he's not saying, I was of the flesh. He's saying, I am of the flesh. But the divided self that he's describing here is one that we as believers can relate to. This isn't a a difficulty for us to enter into. 
Like if you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, but wait a second, I, this doesn't make any sense. No, I remember before I came to Christ, I was really conflicted and I did things that, that I hated. But, but ever since I gave my life to Christ, it's been smooth sailing and that just doesn't happen anymore. I find myself conflicted in any way. I never hate what I do or do what I hate. That's just not the way it is because now I'm saved. I've never run into anyone who would read this passage and, and interpret it that way. Now, oftentimes, like, the criticism that's leveled against Christians is that that's exactly how we think about ourselves. Right? The, the reason that, that you get up and, and, and go to church on a Sunday morning instead of doing something normal like sleeping in or, or playing golf or something like that is because you think you're better than everyone else. You do this because you think they're all sinners, and, and you're not. You have this sort of smug self-righteousness that everybody can see through except for you. Nobody else thinks you're perfect. It's just you as a religious person that are fooling yourself. That's a, a stereotype that people have of Christians that suggest they don't know many Christians, or well, or at least the ones they know are not the ones I wish they did. It, it's, it's a false characterization of Christians. It is not as false a characterization as I wish it were. There are certainly self-righteous Christians that, that are, are guilty on all charges. But most of us, we struggle in the other direction. We're not concerned so much about whether or not we're perfect. We're more likely to be concerned whether or not we're, you know, believers at all. Because, I mean, I believe these things, but, but then I look at my life and I'm like, if I did believe these things, would I do this? Like I say that, that, that I think this is wrong. And in public, I condemn people who do this. You know, but, but I also struggle with that in my own way. I'm no better. Maybe I'm just a, a, a hypocrite. This is a portrait that we can recognize ourselves in. But people will object. Still, I mean, Paul says... I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, right? That doesn't sound quite right. What does he mean by sold under sin? It's an interesting turn of phrase to be sold under sin. In the context that we've been looking at, you can, you can kind of bring to mind this whole idea of servitude and slavery, that we were once slaves of sin and now by grace have become slaves of righteousness, which wasn't, isn't as bad as it sounds, but, but that idea of servitude is definitely in his mind. If you go back to the Old Testament, though, you'll find occasionally people use this language um, that they've sold themselves to sin. In fact, probably the, the, I don't know quite how to describe him, but we might say the Adolf Hitler of the Book of Kings is, is uh, King Ahab. And King Ahab is described... Uh, not only by Elijah the prophet, but also by the author himself as, as a one who had sold himself to sin more than anyone else. Elijah confronts Ahab in Naboth's vineyard, which he has procured through evil means, and, and accuses him of having sold himself in this way. And, uh, and then the author, the, the scribe who's recording these things, gives you a parenthetical saying, oh yeah, no, Elijah was totally right about this. There is nobody who sold himself like Ahab did. That guy was really bad. But then Isaiah picks up that way of speaking. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, speaks of us 
as having been sold into slavery to pay the debt of our iniquities. That because of the sin, we were sold to sin, as it were, to pay off the debt. So that he has God speaking these words in Isaiah 50, verse 3. You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. The idea of being sold under sin is to be under captivity, a captivity that, that God is bringing us out of. But now Paul is pointing to vestiges of that captivity that are still true for us now. That we have been freed, but we are not fully free. The spirit is free, but the flesh remains captive. You might think of it this way. The war against condemnation is won in our justification. But the war for faithfulness is won through sanctification, which is the subduing of the flesh. We saw justification, but now we're puzzling over sanctification, what it is to live as believers who still still have sin at work in their flesh. Despite justification, the believer is still of the flesh. His actions are contrary to his renewed desire. But there is something significant here in the way that Paul describes it, that there's a confusion that enters in. Paul says, I do not understand myself. I do not understand my actions. There's a a bafflement that comes into things. How can I not be acting on my renewed desires? If I know what is right and I want to do what is right, why is that not happening? Because isn't that the way it works? Don't our actions flow from our desires? We do what we will to do. And if I will to do what is right, then why isn't that what's happening? I don't understand. Do the very thing I hate. Well, John Owen, the 17th century theologian who wins the prize for best book title ever, John Owen is the guy who wrote the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is my favorite title. Um, John Owen writes about the difference that has taken place in us as believers as a result of God's grace and and how the conflict has shifted. Uh, Let me give you the the quote, and then I'll, I'll try to unpack it a little bit. So Owen says, in the unregenerate convicted man, in other words, not a believer, but still convicted by the law, still feels bad about what he does. The conflict is merely between the mind and conscience on the one hand and the will on the other. The will is still absolutely bent on sin. Only some head is made against its inclinations by the light of the mind before sin, rebuke of conscience after it. But in the case of the regenerate man, the conflict begins to be in the will itself. A new principle of grace, having been infused therein too, opposes those habitual inclinations unto evil, which were before predominant in it. This fills the soul with amazement, and in some brings them to the very door of despair, because they see not how nor when they shall be delivered." So you look at your life, before Christ and after, and before Christ you were a sinner. Now you have faith. Now you believed in him. And you look at your life and discover you're still a sinner. And you're like, what changed? What happened? What's going on here? 
Owen says, here's what changed. What changed is, before Christ, you, in your logical mind, occasionally felt that there was something bad about what you did willingly. Right? You might read Marcus Aurelius or something like that and see that, that, that I'm not living the way a perfect Stoic should live. I really regret that. It seems to me I should order my life according to different principles and that sort of thing. It's possible to feel bad about that. But the conflict there, Owen says, is between the mind and the will. That's the struggle. But what happens when the principle of grace enters in is that the will itself is subverted for the good. That now the will has changed for the better. And yet, that change for the better creates a crisis. Because there's now a conflict between the will and the action. There's there's a battle within the will. We find ourselves willing one thing and then willing another that undermines it. There's this conflict that he says, in some cases, brings us to the very door of despair. And if you read ahead in chapter 7, you see that's the door we're knocking on. Paul will go straight to that door of despair. What hope is there if this is the life I live? That's what he's heading towards. So, in a sense... The intervention of grace in the will has made things worse, not better. Because we've only become more conscious of our failings. We've only become more conscious of doing what we hate. Now, here's the the interesting twist. Because remember, the context of all this is the law. So in pointing out this conflict within us, Paul then applies it. He says, no, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So you don't have to ask, is the law good or bad? You just need to look at your own actions. If you feel bad, if you do what you hate, the hating part of the equation shows you agree with the law. You agree with the law's condemnation, otherwise you wouldn't hate it. You wouldn't hate it. There's something inside of you that is uh, on the same side of the line as the law. It's not that we do what we hate. It's that we hate what we do that shows this agreement. Now, that's one part of it. Like Paul showing, you already know this. The other part is what hope we can take away from that fact. Right? Now, one way to find the hope in this passage is just to keep reading to the very end of the chapter. Because when you get to the end of the chapter, Paul is going to, to kind of show you where the hope lies. We're going to knock on the door of despair, and we're going to find out that it is answered by none other than Jesus. Not surprisingly. But I want to suggest that there's actually something hopeful even here. It's actually something optimistic even here if you pause and think about the conflict that Paul is describing. He's telling us that we may not yet rule over our sins, and yet now we no longer have to be defined by them. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So there's another dividing line within the self. It's the line between myself and my sin. So there are really two selves here. Paul sometimes talks about the whole self, which is himself and his sin, all considered as one, the spirit and the flesh all together. But here he talks more about what you might think of as his true self, his self apart from sin. The whole self is a complex of sin and grace. The true self is grace simply and only. The whole self includes the continuing indwelling presence of sin. But the true self is the regenerate self that can distinguish itself from the corrupted flesh. That can see itself as separate from its actions. Now it is no longer I, he says, but sin that dwells in me. That implies two things. First of all, when he says now it is no longer I, that implies that it used to be that it was. Right? There was once no conflict between desire and action. Before the conviction of sin awakened, this conflict did not exist. Before grace entered in, this conflict did not exist demonstrating that something has changed. As a believer, he is now conscious of the sin working within him continually in a way that he wasn't before. Because before, it was so wrapped up in who he was that his desires and his self were the same thing. He was what he loved. And now, strangely, it's not that way anymore. Now, he can separate between himself and and what he loves between himself and his corrupted desires. He has the desire he recognizes, but not the ability to carry it out. A desire here is a thelane, uh, which means will. It's not epithemia. It's not the corrupted desire that we talked about before, the wrong desire that is the result of sin. The problem is, within himself, Within ourselves, we lack the ability to carry out the the new wishes of this renewed will because nothing good dwells in my flesh. In uh, Terrence Malick's movie, Tree of Life, there's this scene that I show to students at Worldview when I do a film lecture, and I love showing this scene because of how shocking it is, but also how unshocking it is at the same time. Two brothers are roaming through the woods somewhere in Texas, uh, young kids, uh, two brothers, one BB gun. The older brother has the BB gun. He goes around, he shoots trees with it, he shoots some water with it, and then he turns to regard his younger brother. He goes to his younger brother with the BB gun. He holds it up like this, and he looks at the barrel. You can see the hole in the barrel, and he says to his younger brother, put your finger on it. The younger brother looks at him like, hmm, I don't think this is a good idea. But he's kind of pressured into it, cajoled into it. And so very hesitatingly, the younger brother, he he puts out this shaking finger and he covers the barrel with it. And at that moment, the older brother pulls the trigger and there's this loud boom. Now, all that's happened is that, that this one kid shot this other kid with a BB gun. But when it happens on screen, students react like like he's just 
annihilated his brother. Like, it's the most horrible thing they've ever seen. And honestly, it is. The way that it's portrayed, it, it is a betrayal of trust that is revolting. And after that moment, you look at that older brother, and he's a little monster. The camera follows him around, and you're like, I want to smack that kid. I know it's wrong, you know, to want to smack little children, but that little kid, he's a monster. He needs it. He needs it. I would take that BB gun. I'd shoot him in the eyeball, teach him a lesson, because he's, he's, he's not like us. There's something wrong with that kid. Who would do that to a cute little brother like that? It just doesn't make any sense at all. But what's interesting is, as you follow this older brother, as the camera follows him, you see this shift. It's not verbal at first. It's, it's in his, his expression, and you can see that he's reflecting on what he's done. He's thinking about what he's done. The image of his brother screaming and running away from him is, is emblazoned in his mind, and he has become pensive. And as the kids wander around playing in the woods throughout the course of the day, you begin to hear the thoughts of the older brother as he reflects. And the very first words he says, I do what I hate. I do what I hate. And after you follow him, there's this moment where the younger brother forgives the older brother, and it's really beautiful. But this turn has happened. It's it's similar to the turn I talked about last time in Fritz Lang's movie M, where the, the monster at the beginning, once he's able to make his case, once he's able to talk about uh, his conflicted desires, suddenly we can sympathize with him. The difference here, though, is that you can sympathize with him not because you can imagine yourself in his position, but because you've been there. Because we've all been guilty of betrayals. We've all done those things before. Like We know what it's like to be betrayed and to think, oh, that person is a monster. But we also know what it's like to be the betrayer and to have that conflicted conscience. And in that moment when he speaks those words, I do what I hate, don't be surprised, the movie's called Tree of Life, that this is an intentional Paraphrase of the Apostle Paul. A meditation on on this passage that we're dealing with here. A conflict where we become conscious of our sin and repelled by it. And when we see other people in that similar position, we can sympathize because we've been there too. If you remember Augustine's description of the state of grace the, the Latin term was passe non peccare, people in a state of grace, believers are able not to sin. Able not to sin. But the question is what makes it passe, what makes it possible not to sin? There are people who say that once we're in a state of grace, we remain in that state through an act of will. By willing and doing what is right. The problem is that sanctification by willpower is hard to tell apart from justification by willpower. It creates the same kind of anguish which Paul captures here. You can't save yourself by works. You also can't stay saved by works. Because you do not have the ability to do what you desire. You do what you hate. Holiness cannot come from within. Because the flesh, corrupted by sin, lacks the ability to carry it out. So holiness, true holiness, can only come from outside. 
can only come from outside. Against the indwelling of the Spirit must be opposed. I'm sorry, against the indwelling of sin must be opposed. The indwelling of the Spirit. Paul says, no, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not making an excuse. This isn't like a a version of the devil made me do it. I I know I betrayed you, but it wasn't me that betrayed you. It was sin dwelling in me, so you can't really hold me responsible. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is that something has changed within him. There is now this conflict as a result of grace. He can never be content again to do this evil because he now hates it. He's now alienated from his sin, which he used to love. That's not the solution. Alienation from sin is not a solution. It's not the end of the trouble. It feels worse in some ways, but it does point to the solution. The alienation from our sin points to, it sets the stage for the good news, which is coming at the end of the chapter. There is no hope within us, but there is real hope from Christ through the Spirit's power. The indwelling of sin will be answered by the indwelling of the Spirit. Just as we are saved by grace, we will be sanctified by grace as well. There may be no good within us, within our flesh, but the Spirit will do what the flesh cannot. But there are a couple of things to take away before we get to that point. There's a couple of things to reflect on. If it's no longer I, but sin that dwells in me, then I can distance myself from the sin that I commit and acknowledge my abhorrence of it. If I can tell the difference between myself and my sin, then my sin no longer defines me. I don't have to cling to it in the way that I once did. I don't have to defend it in the way that I once did. I could admit I hate it, even though I do it. And that's something. I do not have to find my identity in my corrupted desires or in the sin that flows out of them as if I'm nothing more than just the sum of my corrupted parts. Because there is that glimmer of hope in the realization that I do it, yes, but I hate it. I hate it. Because I now long for something more. It matters Because the world around me says that my desires are my identity, that I am what I do. I'm defined by what I've done. If I'm guilty, that I'm guilty forever. And I'll never be more than the sins I've committed, which is the reason why we defend them so tenaciously. Being able to separate ourselves from our sin allows us to condemn the sin and to turn our backs on it allows us to hate it in good conscience, so to speak. Also this, if it is no longer I but sin that dwells in me, then I must recognize and can recognize my ongoing need for the work of the Holy Spirit. I think the reason we struggle in our walk with Christ is that we imagine that all that we needed we got at the foot of the cross and now we can move on. I needed grace at once, once upon a time, I was a sinner. 
I really needed it. And now I have it, and I have what I need in order to live the life I've been called to live. I no longer need what I once did. But when you realize that you continue to do what you hate, you suddenly see that you don't have the strength within you. You don't have the faculties and ability within you to do what you now desire to do, to live as you now desire to live. And if you don't have it, where can it be found? So in that realization, not only do we confirm the goodness of the law, but we also remind ourselves of our ongoing need for grace, our ongoing need for God's Spirit. When you kneel at the cross, you do it because you need Jesus. What I'm saying is that, that recognizing the distance between ourselves and our sin reminds us we haven't stopped needing him. We haven't stopped needing to kneel at the cross. The need for spiritual help will keep us always at the cross because that's the only source for the power that we need to do what we love and not just what we hate. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.